about the expansion of the church, and we ended um, last week talking about the stoning of Stephen. Stephen, uh, which would be considered the first martyr. Uh, the word martyr actually just means witness, but um, what better way to witness than to give your life uh, for the gospel? And we see that Stephen has antagonized a group of people by giving the gospel, and those people didn't receive the gospel, and so they in turn paid Stephen back by stoning him. They stoned him to death, and you can see the love of Jesus in Stephen because Stephen says, even in the midst of being stoned, Lord, don't lay this sin to their charge. In other words, he's saying, forgive them in a sense, just like Jesus, for they don't really know what they do. Can you imagine having enough God in you? Most of us can't get over people talking about us behind our back or saying nasty things about us. Or, or making up rumors on us, or whatever the case may be, or intentionally trying to do something psychological or mean. And here this man is about to breathe his last. He's been bludgeoned, and he's been beaten, and he's been stoned. And somewhere deep down on the inside of him, he has the fortitude to say, Lord, don't lay this sin to their charge. That is a mighty testament to the power and the love of Jesus Christ and to the church. The Bible says, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. And we'll see how the gospel begins to spread. And we've talked several times about the gospel and the word euangelion, which simply means the good news. We, that's where we get our word evangelist or evangelism from, which is the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel uh, and evangelists bring the good news of Jesus Christ. And as we look into the beginning of the, of the church, I want to read the last verse. Uh, of chapter 7 and uh, which is verse 60 and it says then he fell out on his knees and cried Lord do not hold this sin against them when he had said this he fell asleep and Saul was there giving approval to his death if you read through Acts you would swear that Luke was a movie writer because the way he writes the book of Acts it's always moving from one scene into the next, and it will be just as if when I read it, I feel like I'm almost watching a script or a movie. It, it's a beautiful thing of the church, but this is a very important time with the martyrdom of Stephen because the martyrdom of Stephen marks a shift in the climate for this new creation called the church. It's the catalyst for the persecution and the spread of the church. At the beginning, when they begin to stone Stephen, from there, everything begins to heat up for the Christian culture. It was, oh, it was just weird to be a Christian at that point, and people really didn't know much about them, but by this time they've stirred up enough that people are tired of them and they begin to be aggressive, and they've been, uh, they'll be able to attack them. And I'm not going to read all the scriptures this time, but in verses 1 through 10 of uh, chapter 8, you will see three foundational principles, and one is that the church thrives under pressure. The Bible says in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered through Judea and Samaria. God's getting the gospel out. You might not notice this, but if you're a Bible scholar and think about the text, God started at the beginning, and he said, Be fruitful and multiply, and what? Fill the earth. You need to spread out. And when they did not spread out, like he told them to spread out in the beginning of Genesis, 
God confused the languages, which means that the confusion or the Babel is where we get the word babbling from the Tower of Babel, made them through trial and confusion be able to have to what? Spread. And oftentimes we look at persecution in the church and we always want to be loved and we always want to be accepted and it's okay it's okay to want affirmation it's okay to want people to like you that's that's a natural human emotion but the truth of the matter is the church is at its best when suffering is at its highest that the the church thrives under pressure and the apostles as they begin to be uh, begin to be persecuted, you see that the gospel doesn't go introverted. The gospel begins to what? Spread. And that's amazing to me that no matter how many times that the enemy tries to stamp out the gospel of Jesus Christ, it continues to grow. It continues to spread. It continues to go. And we see in verse 2, it says, Godly men buried Stephen and mourned him deeply, but Saul began to destroy the church. He was violent against the church. Going house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them into prison. So the same thing that was done to Stephen could be done to them. Saul's not a very friendly, nor is he a nice person at all. Saul is a very violent person. He's going around taking women and children to bring them to the council to be tried and potentially executed. This is a tough time during the times of the church. This is a tough time. We see these things now in culture. We, there are places where people live, and we take for granted sometimes the, the beautiful expression of faith that we have. I, I've been thinking and studying and having several conversations with why it is that people at the church at large have the great falling away. People tend not to see value in the church, but yet there are people in other countries willing to die for what they believe. They'd rather die than not say Jesus is Lord. They'd rather die than not congregate in the church. They'd rather die than not give God their all. And could it be, I'm not judging, but could it be that there's something genuine that's in those believers that is not in the believers here that sometimes comfort can kill? Sometimes comfort can make us apathetic in the church. When the majority of people are Christian, we don't evangelize. We just assume everybody's going to come to the church. But when you feel the pressure, it takes pressure to make diamonds. And if you're going to shine like God wants you to shine, that means that you're going to have to be in a climate that is not comfortable. You're going to have to be in a climate that creates pressure. And you ought to thank God when persecution comes to the church. You ought to thank God that Christianity isn't the popular or dominant religion in America anymore. Why? Because the real church will show up and the real church will still go. We, I love if everybody in, in America was a Christian. I love if everybody in America had Christian values, but the truth of the matter is everybody in America is not and everybody in America does not. And as a matter of fact, most people in America who are not do not like people who profess Christ. Many people are civil and they don't care one way or another, but there is a large group of people who are antagonistic towards all things Christian. And it is during this time of great persecution that we should take the time to go to our knees and pray and not hide, but to begin to spread the gospel further. Number one, that the church thrives under pressure. Number two, that the church survives through all persecution. Let's see what happens in verse 4, chapter 8, verse 4. Those who had been scattered 
preach the word. Let's read that again. Let's read that. Everybody read that together. Let's read. Those who have been scattered preach the word wherever they went. In other words, despite the pressure, you may make me scatter, and there are only going to be the apostles left here in Jerusalem. We have to flee for our lives. But all you're doing while you're trying to scatter me is you're making me move. And what happens is the church begins to grow and grow, and God puts his spirit in all of these people. And as those people begin to travel, the gospel becomes greater and greater, and more people get saved. And this is a time through recorded history that Rome, I won't say takes over most of the known world because we do know that there are, there's Africa and there's Asia and, and there's all sorts of places where, where they weren't centered in that area but most of recorded history around the Greco-Roman tradition that we look at during many times Rome is ruling those things from all the way to Western Europe all the way back across to Turkey and those places and because they're one country they don't have any borders you know what that means the gospel can spread quickly there are no customs to check you in all you need is this road that the Romans have made for trade and also to be able to take their large armies in places and God has strategically chosen this time in history when it is the most conducive to get the gospel out because most people in the Roman Empire speak at least Greek or Latin, which means that it is very easy to get the message of the gospel across the known world. And that's important. Number three, that the power of the Holy Spirit sustains the persecuted church. Even under great persecution, that we see the power of God still working. Uh, we'll go to verse 6 of chapter 8. I want to read that. Read that with me, if you will. It says, when the crowds heard Philip and saw miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. That's verse 8 that, that goes on. It lets us know that as the gospel spreads, many things are happening and the power of God is moving all over the place. But what we must always be aware of is that for everything God creates, Satan counterfeits. Whatever God has, Satan has a, a counterfeit to it. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the God of this world. He has powers and rulers and authorities and principalities. He's always trying to counterfeit things that God has. And now that the power of the Holy Spirit is moving, we'll see in this next section of chapter 8 that they come into contact with a witch or a warlock. And his name is Simon. And we see the power of God working mightily to expose those things. Let's go to verse 9 and we'll just continue reading all the way through 14. Let's read that. Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 9 through 14. Ready, read. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man... Uh, is the divine power known as the great power. Now, wait a minute. He's a witch. He's a warlock. But these people think that God sent him. Because everybody repeat after me. Whatever God creates, Satan counterfeits. Sometimes there are even traditions and things in the church that we see happen 
and God is not the author of it. And the church at large, because people tend to think just because a miracle happened that God, what, created it. But Satan can do those things sometimes, too, to distract people hmm. from the gospel. Because guess what? We as human beings are attracted to the supernatural. And what do we tend to do? When we see things that are supernatural, we know it's spiritual, and it draws us. And oftentimes you'll have people running from church to church or ministry to ministry and saying, God's not here because there's no miraculous works happening here. The fact that you're breathing and you've never thought all day long that you should breathe is a miracle in itself that God has created your body with an autonomic system that keeps it moving and keeps it working, you are a miracle. The fact that you are saved and your God has allowed us to be able to go into, the, into heaven and to be with him by grace through faith, that in itself is a miracle. But we see Simon here, the enemy can use miracles to confuse people into believing, um, believing things, but Christ is in every individual and the same power is in all of us. If you believe in Jesus Christ, whatsoever your heart desires when you pray, what? Believe that you shall receive and you shall have it. If you ask anything in my name according to my will, you shall what? Have it. But many times we don't believe those things and we don't exercise in faith. But this time the church, it, it, God is showing up the enemy because Simon has been getting all the praise. They, they were saying that Simon, God had sent, uh, sent uh, Christ. And I, I'm reminded of how they tell what a counterfeit bill is. You know how they tell what a counterfeit $100 bill is? There you go, Brother Bob. You get to know the real one. You don't teach people a thousand types of different, different counterfeits. You tell them, the FBI will tell you, or any kind of uh, a government agency, learn what the real bill looks like, and you will always be able to spot the what? Fake. The reason there are so many fake things popping up in the culture at large and in the church is because there are a few real ones sometimes. Sometimes we can go after all sorts of fads and all sorts of trends, and as I talked about uh, Sunday, sometimes biblical illiteracy in the pulpit creates biblical illiteracy in the pew, and because people don't know, they tend to follow things based off of the senses and what they see rather than what they know in the word, and they're not able to rightly divide the word of truth. And then everybody, as Paul would tell Timothy, they will be tossed about to and fro with every wind and wave of doctrine. That's why it's important not just to come to church. It's important to be a student of the word to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, to study thyself approved, show thyself approved, a workman needing not being able to be made ashamed, that you're able to rightly divide the word of truth. Seminary is not just for the preacher. Bible training is not just for the preacher. But the church is required to know the word of God. The word is a two-edged sword, alive and active, and everybody who is saved is a member of God's army, and it will be malpractice practice to send anybody into a war who did not have a weapon and did not know how to use a weapon. So it is important for us in the body of Christ, especially for new believers, to know and let them know that you have a weapon and to teach them how to properly use that weapon so that they can navigate through life and cut through depression, cut through false doctrine, cut through all sorts of fads, cut through sickness, cut through disease, cut through all these things because they have been raised and taught and trained how to wield the sword. 
Bible training is extremely important. It's okay to have emotions, and it's okay for God to move and for signs to happen and us to have Sundays like we had Sunday where I was debating whether or not I was going to start opening up the text or give the benediction and go home. It's great to have that, but you can't live off of that because you'll start to follow fads and signs and only feel like God is moving when emotionalism is in the church, but what sustains us is doctrine and the word of God. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. You need spirit and you need word. And we see that Simon the sorcerer, they say he has great power. Let's read Acts chapter 8, verse 11. It says, they followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. Leave that up. You know how many people are following people because they've amazed them with the, their gift and their talent and their ability to speak. They're following people because they have a charismatic personality and they look good on camera. It's not their fault. They don't have anything to do with how they look, but there are many people that are following people for the what? Wrong reasons. And what they don't really realize is they're following a counterfeit that looks good, that sounds good, but inside there's not much there. Let's go to verse 12. We're going to read down a little bit. Just keep going until I tell you to stop. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Let's continue. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Stop. You can leave that up. That's amazing. We can go ahead and read that last verse. Go back to that, and we'll stop right there. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. Now we see that the word of God is getting out of Judea and getting into Samaria. And what you may not realize is that this is not the first time Jesus has showed up. The gospel of Jesus Christ has showed up in Samaria. Because if you go back to the book of John chapter 4, Jesus decides instead of going the three-day journey around like most Jews would, he stops and goes through Samaria, sits at a well, and meets a woman who's had five husbands and now is cohabitating with somebody who is not her husband. And after that, she has an encounter with Jesus. She ends up going into the town, and because Jesus told her about her life, she begins to evangelize, and the Bible says that people begin to come to Christ. There's already a foundation in Samaria for people, so when they see the gospel of Jesus Christ come, many believe and they are saved, and even the trickster got saved. Now, we see Simon is a baby Christian because he asked some foolish stuff a little bit later on in the text, but, and he has some other issues that are going on with him. But the Bible says that even he accepted the word of God. And it says, when they, and we need to read this. Let's go to verse 15. This is important. Let's read this. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Keep going. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them, they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, we need to pay close attention to that. You can leave that up, uh, and you can leave verse 17 because we're going to that next. That they were saved. They had been baptized, 
but they, they had the Holy Spirit indwelling in them, but they weren't baptized with or filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a difference between the two. There's a difference between, and now that same Spirit which raised Jesus from the dead now lives on the inside of you. When you are saved, you have the Holy Spirit. Don't let anybody tell you not. As soon as you decide to have Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and takes residence in you. God is in your heart, whether or not you ever speak in tongues, whether or not you ever do a miracle. you saved, you're going to heaven, that's it. That's it. And nobody can undo that. But this is a different thing that we see the church is empowering. There's a feeling of the Holy Spirit and empowerment for what? Service. And we see in the scripture that these people, the Bible says what? They had already believed. They had already been baptized, but they were not yet filled. And so they laid hands on them and they what? Received the Holy Spirit. They received an empowerment in verse 17. Let's keep going. Then Peter and John... We'll go back a little bit. Go back to verse 17. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Let's go to verse 18. When Simon saw the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Oh, wow. Bad move. Let's keep going. And said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Continue. Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. Let's, let's continue to go. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord and the hope he may give, forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. Let's see how he responds. Go to verse 23. Verse 23, for I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. We have two more verses. We're going to read 24 and 25. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me, so nothing you have said may happen to me. He knows this is real. He knows that God is real. He doesn't want, he doesn't want any of that trouble. Let's read. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter, and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Now, you might not notice right on the top uh, of this what's wrong with this. It's because Jews don't have anything to do with Samaritans because they consider Samaritans half-breeds, and they call them dogs just like they do Gentiles. As a matter of fact, to go through Samaria will be the quickest route, and that's why it was peculiar when Jesus actually goes through Samaria because most Jews would go all the way around Samaria which would add another three days to their journey just so they didn't have to come in contact with the Samaritans but guess what the gospel of Jesus Christ is coming into Samaria and now you see that God is coming to different portions of the world God is getting out uh, getting out to to different people and that's important for us to note and we'll see this later and I want to give away uh, one of my points, but at the same time, oftentimes we try to decide who we think should be saved. Based on how they vote in the ballot box or based on how they look or where they live. But those things are strictly up to who? God. He determines, not us, thank goodness, <laughs> who gets to be saved. 
It's not us. We don't get to determine the criteria for salvation. Now look at verse 26, and I'm just going to paraphrase this for you. You can read this when you get home. But we see that after this happens and they stay and they begin to preach, that Philip is translated. Philip is like, he's seriously like, like what, what, what's a good show? Uh, like a Star Trek. He is taken up and he is beamed up and literally beamed to a chariot that's driving because God has an agenda and he wants to get the gospel out for this agenda. And as he runs up to the chariot because the spirit tells him to run up to this chariot, he sees a, uh, a Cushite, an African, for, who is a high official at the highest level of go government for the queen or Candace of Ethiopia, which is a very large and powerful province in Africa. And we know that he knows of God because he is a proselyte. How do I know he's a proselyte? He's headed from the city, which means he came to what? Worship. And he is reading Isaiah the prophet. And as he's beginning to read Isaiah the prophet, he's reading all this stuff. And Philip decides to start a conversation with him and says, do you understand what you read? And he says, how would I know unless somebody explained it to me? Once again, Biblical literacy is what? Important. If somebody on the middle of the street decides that they need to know Christ and they may never see another Christian again, you might not have time to say, let me go get the pastor or the deacon or the mother or the elder or these people. You may be the person empowered by the Holy Spirit to lead them to Christ. So there is no room for biblical illiteracy in the church. There is no room for spiritual illiteracy in the church. It is our job to make sure that we are well equipped, not just to save ourselves, but to get the gospel out to what? Other people. This man is one of the most influential people, and I don't even know at the time if, if, if Philip even knows who he is, but he is a powerful man. He's over the treasury for the queen of Ethiopia. So guess what's going to happen when he gets the gospel? The gospel of Jesus Christ is going to go even farther in Africa. We already see at the beginning of the book of Acts that, that Africa already has the gospel because people there were proselytes or people that had came from there to worship. There were some people there from Africa. But now God is getting the gospel at the highest levels of government. Wouldn't it be good if we started to change our prayer to say, Lord, I pray that you put qualified people that are saved in strategic places next to people that have power so that when they begin to make decisions, they become influenced by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, that is a specific prayer. That's a strategic prayer, and I do pray that. I pray that God puts people in the White House and in Congress and in, in, in local government and things like that in positions of influence that will receive the gospel of Jesus Christ because once those people who have the ability to change policy and other things become saved, people govern according to their what? Belief. So that's why it's important for us to pray for our what? Leaders. Paul Writes, a, writes an epistle and he says pray for those that have rule over you pray for them because if they rule well it'll be peaceable and it will be good for you it's important for us to pray for our government turn off Fox News and turn off CNN and start praying and fighting in your government because you are a kingdom member 
You are a member of the kingdom of God and begin to say, Lord, I pray that you put people that are, are saved and Holy Spirit filled in, in, in influential places. Lord, direct their path so that when people making the decisions, make them that they bump into those people and that their trajectory is changed. The Bible says the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it like a water course. It's important for us to know that God may put us in places of influence. Here it is, little old Philip talking to a high up government official, pretty much the secretary of commerce for a whole country, and God is using him to transform that country. God can use you if you want to be used. He begins to read the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53 and uh, uh, chapter 8 verse 32, and it says he was led like a sheep to the slaughter and and as a lamb before the shepherd, the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And in his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? In other words, they're going to kill him before he can have any wife or any children. For his life was taken from the earth. And he begins to ask, tell me, please, who the prophet is talking. Is he talking about himself or anyone else? And then Philip jumps on his opportunity and begins to talk about the scripture. And before he finishes, the Bible says that the eunuch decides to receive Jesus Christ and he says this he says I'm not gonna wait look here's some water right here why don't we stop I don't see any reason why I don't get baptized right now that the gospel is that powerful that it is traveling over I'm letting you know that you make a difference who knows who you can influence for the gospel of Jesus Christ just by showing love just by showing kindness just by showing grace you never know is watching. I left my Bible and on the way back to get my Bible, Lamarck offered to get my Bible, but I wa walked back over there and as I walked back over there, I was coming back and I saw somebody with a dog and I, I, I vaguely remembered them and they asked, when is your church service? And I, I talked to them and it was for a second after I talked to them a while, I realized they recognized me before I recognized them and she says, I know your family, your family's always nice to me. Because they come through walking the dog, and we're always talking to them. You never know who's watching you. You never know who you have the ability to influence. You never know that waitress at the table who's had a really, really horrible day, and somebody drops a $100 tip on the table and says, Jesus loves you. You never know what that'll do for somebody's life. You mind if I, I tell them what happened, happened to us? We, we went out and I was, I was gonna take Robin to lunch and Robin was busy and uh, I had somebody call and I, I said, hey, I, I saw you call. And they said, well, what are you doing? I said, I was trying to take my, my, my wife to lunch but she's, she's busy and she doesn't have time for me today. And they said, well, we, we were going to lunch, we we're gonna take you. And I said, okay, and I hung up the phone. I said, see, you missed your blessing. Nah, 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 nah. And I got in the car, and we, we drove on down to the place, and as we begin to sit down and we begin to eat, all of a sudden, a gentleman walks up to us and says, do you believe in paying it forward? And, and I said, yeah, we do. He said, have a nice day. Your bill is paid for. That type of generosity and that type of love Remember when I talked to you about the kindness cards and we just got a whole bunch more? 
that type of thing shows the love of Jesus Christ. Extreme, out of the ordinary, generosity to people for no reason at all. You don't know what type of life people are having, and you can have the ability to impact their life. If you give them a $2 tip, don't write Jesus loves you on the slap. Don't do that. <laughs> that 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 doesn't bode well. You can you say God bless you on the way out the door. Just say it real soft. <laughs> but we serve a loving God. We serve a generous God. And the Bible says, with what? Loving kindness have I drawn thee. God is calling us to extravagant love, extravagant generosity. He's calling us to people and to let the Holy Spirit use us, and sometimes your kindness can open the door. I'm challenging you to let your kindness open the door. We see uh, verse 29 of chapter 8. I want to bring, uh, bring attention to that because it said, The Spirit let, told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. It's important for us to know that evangelism should be spirit-led. Why? If we're not listening to the Spirit, we might let somebody that's our assignment pass right by us. Have you ever just had a day where you're just tired? You're not very energized? And there may have been somebody with the opportunity for the gospel, but you were so into your thoughts and so into your head or so into your problem or so into that nagging, aching, chronic pain that you went through the line and you didn't even realize, you know, you couldn't even tell the person what they look like because you were so inside of yourself that you weren't thinking about anything else but what you were going through. And that may have been a missed opportunity to change somebody's life. It only took one conversation for the gospel to get to Ethiopia. One conversation, a little bit of time changing one person's world. Do you not know if you change one person's life, you may think you changed that one person's life, but if that person has four kids in the next hundred years and they're saved for Jesus Christ, that one soul that you lead to Christ may cause an entire generation of family to be able to love the Lord. Have you ever thought about something? Somebody led Billy Graham to Christ. I doubt that they led as many people to Christ as Billy Graham. But guess what? They get credit in heaven. Why? Because they led him. Never overlook the opportunity to spread the gospel to somebody. Every opportunity is a good opportunity. On your job, in your home, to spread the love of Jesus. I had somebody at work, the, the, uh, to, when was that, the other day, and I was, saying, I was showing him something for something we're going to be doing for men's ministry soon. And I was telling him about this little clip that I sent to the men, just a, a little 60-second clip that the Lord put on my heart. And while I was driving, I, I began to speak what was on my heart, and I sent it out. And I didn't think it would make that much of a difference. And I sent it to a couple of people, and one guy said, I sent it to 10 different guys. And all of them responded back to me, people that I never know and I would never see. And then this guy who I thought would be less likely to even care, he was at work and I began to mention it. He wrote his number down and said, send it. When you do those, send them to me. I could use it too. You never know the smallest act. It was a 60-second clip. It wasn't an hour-long sermon, but a 60-second clip, a, a, a stop of kindness. Uh, how are you doing? Jesus loves you. Are you saved? I'd love for you to come to my church. Church, I love, uh, I love to, to partner with you and, and, and to be able to help you. You seem like you're going through. 
that small act of kindness, that small act of Holy Spirit-led evangelism could be the difference between somebody's soul and not their soul. You can't afford to be caught up in your problem. Somebody's soul depends on it. You can't be stuck in your situation because somebody's lost and you know the way. You're more powerful than you know, not because of who you are intrinsically, but because of who lives on the inside of you. <laughs> and we go down to chapter 9. Chapter 9, we see this guy named Saul. And the Bible says in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He's a killer. He wants people to die. He went to the high priest and asked them for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way. See, Christians weren't called Christians yet. There's a few tra chapters before they're called Christians. The original Christians were called followers of the way. Jesus said, I am the what? The way, the truth, and the life. Where we get that ichthus symbol, that symbol of the fish that Christians would walk up because they were being persecuted. And they would draw with their foot half of the fish in the ground. And if somebody was a believer, they knew what it meant. And they would draw the other half in the ground to let them know that I'm a fellow believer. They weren't able to openly always express their faith because they were under heavy persecution. And now we see why. Because people like Paul are killing Christians and, and, and leading them back for jail and things like that. And it says, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. But oh, one day, he comes in contact with Jesus. This is a beautiful thing. Because there are many people working in religious aspects that have yet to come in contact with Jesus. There are people with seminary degrees and masters of divinity and demons, highly educated in religion and philosophy, leading churches, oftentimes, but they haven't yet come in contact with Jesus. And although they mean well, just like Paul meant well, they're doing more harm than good because they're zealous. They have a zeal for God, but it's not according to what? They're serving a God that they really don't know that well. And the Bible says that as he got near Damascus, a light came from heaven, and it blinded him. And he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he says, who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus, who you are persecuting. Now get up and go to the city, and you will be told what you must do. And this man who is a vicious, vicious man is blinded, and God puts scales on his eyes. And it's amazing that he has to go to Ananias and have prayer for the scales to be released. I see something there, that there are many people that are serving in positions all over the country and places, and this is not a critical statement, this is a factual statement, that have scales on their eyes. And it's up to loving people in the church not to kill them, but to pray that the Lord takes the scales off of their eyes 
so that they will be able to preach the truth of Jesus Christ. There are many people who have religious performance but scales on their eyes, but a genuine contact with the Lord Jesus will cause a dramatic change in their behavior and their disposition. I am praying right now in the name of Jesus that if somebody's listening to this now or in the future, that the scales come off of your eyes and, and whatever's covering your eyes will be unveiled because the Bible says that the God of this world had blinded their eyes, but the God of the universe can set their eyes free. I pray right now that God gives them clear vision that they may see him and, and that they may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. God in this one small act has changed the lives of millions of people because this man that he knocks off of his beast will thereby go and write two-thirds of the New Testament and he will begin to travel for the Lord Jesus. He is so bad that when they, when they finally bring him in and they say, hey, guess who we got? I want you to come see him. He's preaching the gospel. What's his name? They said, Saul. They said, no, no, I'm, I'm skipping that revival. <laughs> oh, no. He came here to kill us. What are you doing? It's a trap. Don't do it. They knew who he was, but God had so dramatically changed him. People don't do that off a of rumor. They do that when it's been proven. He's a proven brutal person. But God has changed his life. And God has turned him around. Never discount anybody. Never throw anybody away. Because what you call mess, God can call blessed. He can take it and he can turn it around and use it for his glory. He used that same energy that Paul used to go out and try to kill Christians to spread his word. God can use anybody he wants to use when he wants to use them. And I like the way he said it in verse 15 to Ananias. He says, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Well, that doesn't show up in the new member's class, does it? <laughs> how much? We don't talk about the doctrine of suffering. But God is sometimes glorified in our suffering. I'm not talking about asceticism where we just try to make ourselves suffer for no reason as, as if that uh, we're trying to glorify God, but sometimes we will be called to suffer for the name of Jesus. And our suffering can be a beautiful call to worship. That, Lord, I'm going through this, but I'm going through it. And I know that I'm not going to go and, and, and be sad like I normally would. I'm going to use this as an opportunity to say, I'm glad I have to do it. If I have to do it, I'm glad it's for you. Your suffering can become worship. Your trial can become worship. Count it all joy when you fall into all manners of diverse temptation or all sorts of trials and suffering because something is being birthed on the inside of you. And many Christians never grow because they won't suffer for Jesus. And they are caterpillars. What do you mean, Brother Bear? I mean this, that if you've ever seen a caterpillar, he crawls up and he cocoons himself in something called a chrysalis. And inside of that chrysalis, 
It's designed to be too tough for the butterfly to get out of. Why? Because the butterfly has to develop his wings, and if he begins to spread his wings against the chrysalis, it's too hard for him to get out. But he continues to do it, and what's happening while he's in the midst of his struggle is that his wings are gaining strength. And if you mess up and let him out before his wings gain strength, he will forever be crippled. So you can't save him from his trial. You can't save him from his suffering because it is the suffering itself which causes the butterfly to fly in the world the first place. Sometimes we are trying to run from the very thing that God is using to help us to fly into the purpose that he's called us to. We want every day to be sugar. We want every day to be sunshine, but we should thank God for trial. We should thank God for tough things that that don't always go our way because they are building our spiritual muscle. And when you are converted and strengthened, you can strengthen your brother. There was an old gospel song when I grew up, and I thought it was silly. I really did think it was silly because I read it as a little child. I used to read the Bible like Haley, and I, I remember reading Jesus and Mark, and Mark saying, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can speak to this mountain and say, be thou removed, and it's cast into the sea. And I would say, look at that. These people don't know the Bible. Listen to the song. And the words of the song would say, Lord, don't move my mountain, but give me the strength to climb. And Lord, don't take away my stumbling block, but lead me on around. And I said, that's simply because they, they weren't able to read the scriptures. They, they didn't know any better. But what they were really saying is, Lord, some of the things that I want to ask you to move, if you move them, I won't be what you're calling me to be. But I hear the word of the Lord saying, when we are tested, I shall come forth as pure gold. Don't be sad when you suffer. Don't be sad when persecution comes. But be grateful to God that I'm going to come out of this better than I went into this. Don't sit there in a pity party, but say, God, I'm thankful that what I'm going through, you don't waste any pain. You're not going to waste my pain. You're not going to waste my experience that I'm going to give you glory even in the tough time. I can praise you better and different when I have money, when I remember what it's like to not have any. I can praise you different when there's food in the cupboard, when I didn't know where the food was going to come from. I can thank you, get better for healing in my body when I do know the doctor he shook his head and I shouldn't even be here. But now, because I've gone through it, I know you in a deeper and a more personal and a better way. Some of the most deepest places I've had with God and deepest experiences I've had with God have been at the most horrible times of my life. Because they didn't push me to quit. They pushed me to my knees. And it is on your knees where transformation happens. It is on your knees where situations begin to change. It is on your knees where you begin to change. Sometimes prayer doesn't change your situation. Sometimes it changes you. May we as believers get to that position where we say, Lord, how will I suffer for you? Sometimes now there's enough of just trying to get people in church doors across America. We try to buy them food and give them all sorts of things and gifts. 
and things like that. But if you give the food and the gifts to give it to, to just to catch them, you're teaching the truth of the gospel. You'll have to continue to do that to keep them. But it's time for us to raise up a generation that says, Lord, how will I suffer for you? That almost sounds heretical, doesn't it? In today's culture, well, we always teach people that everything good will happen, but a balanced gospel tells you that God reigns on the just as well as the unjust. It says he created light and he separated it from the darkness, that he's a God of balance. And just like sunshine sometimes comes into your life, sometimes rain comes, and you don't curse the rain, you thank You don't curse the trial. You thank God that he's able to work miracles. You don't curse the situation. You thank God that he's the deliverer. Oh, God. How many of us spent time being ungrateful and unthankful? bitter about our situation. I got one honest person in the building. <laughs> Being mad at God for situations that oftentimes we put ourselves in. And we miss it. We genuinely miss it. That sometimes, although God doesn't cause these things, he allows these things because he knows what they will make us. He knows it's not going to kill you because he's there with you. That's why he didn't stop the Hebrew boys. We see all the time that God delivers people. He's going to open the doors in a few chapters and Peter's just going to walk out of the jail. But for the Hebrew boys who showed extreme faith, they even said, if God doesn't deliver us, he's still able and they walk right up to the door saying, he's going to deliver us. They walk right out of the palace saying, he's, he's going to deliver us. But if he doesn't, he's able. They walk right out to where they could feel the heat singeing on their skin saying, he can still deliver us. They walked out and watched the guards before them with heat that was so hot that it killed the people that were coming to throw them in the fire. The guards themselves are consumed, and they're still walking up to the fire saying, he can still deliver. They got thrown in the fire, and their bonds were burned off of them. And somehow, while they were still there, can you imagine that God hadn't delivered them yet, and they still have the faith, and now you're in the middle of the situation that you've been praying to God to deliver you from, and not only has he not delivered you from it, but you find yourself dead in the middle of what's taking everybody else out. But somehow, while you're sitting there, you have two choices. You can either curse the fire or stop and look at your clothes. They're still not burning. You can either curse the sickness or stop and look in the mirror and say, I woke up to see another day. You can either curse an empty wallet or thank God that I still got food on my table even though I don't have much money in my pocket. You can look and say, I have sickness and you haven't delivered me from the sickness, but thank God I still have breath in my body that I can enjoy what pain feels like. It's time for us to be grateful.
Oh, God, help us to learn to love you in every situation, to love you when things are good, to love you when things are bad, to love you when things are up, to love you when things are down, to love you when we have plenty, to love you when we don't have any, to love you when we're well, and to love you when we're sick. Paul said, I've learned how in all situations. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but we do know who holds tomorrow. Lord, what must he suffer for your name? That doesn't always mean persecution. What thing might I do that might be out of my comfort zone for your name? I'm not, I'm really introverted. I really don't like to talk to people, Lord. Well, could it be that I get out of my comfort zone enough just to take a kindness card? I can't have a long conversation with you because people weird me out. But I'm going to just hand you this card and walk away and hope that you read it. I'm willing to get a little bit uncomfortable just to share the gospel. What must I suffer for your name? Somebody might say, large crowds, give me the heebie-jeebies, but I go to some events that I might not even like for the sake that I might win somebody to Christ, Paul said, I have become all things to all people that I might win some. He knew he wasn't going to win all, but he became all just to win some. If I can win one soul, if I can save one life, it'll all be worth it. Lord, what must he suffer? your name. I pray that we suffer well with gladness. I pray, Lord God, that you spark us to get out of our comfort zone and to be used by you, to be available to you, God. Use us how you see fit. Let all those who hear the sound of my voice now or in the future, let their hearts be conditioned by the Holy Spirit with a new mindset that we no longer come to church or serve you for what we can get out of it. But we come for what we can give. Whether it be time, whether it be talent, whether it be treasure, whatever it is, Lord God, that we change our mentality, especially in the Western church, to that of a servant. That we come to serve and not be served for your glory. And it's in your name, Jesus, we do pray. Amen. Somebody give God a hand clap of praise.